Hey guys, this is Emmett. Welcome to your latest installment of Exhaust, the podcast about why nothing feels possible. I am joined today by good friend Luke Thompson, a Republican political consultant and host of one of my favorite podcasts, Constitutionally Speaking. You guys are pretty far into a very successful series on the history of the U.S. Congress, right? Yeah, uh, well, thank, thanks for having me, Emmett, and letting Political Hack come on to, to, <laughs> to sort of talk about things other than elections and crosstabs and everything. Uh, yeah. yeah, so Jay, Jay Cost and I have a, a sort of fun side project called Constitutionally Speaking, where we, we both got PhDs in, uh, the, and wrote dissertations focused on early American political thought and, and related things. And so many years ago, we were sort of DMing one another and chatting about different topics. And we said, well, let, let's see if people would like this as a podcast. And so for several years, we've been going. And initially, we were doing it every couple of weeks and, and just working through the text of the document. And you know, after we kind of wrapped up that, we've then since been doing mini-series. And we're doing a mini-series on Congress right now that's been really fun. We've, we've gone through sort of the, histor- the historical development of Congress, how it's changed over time. And now we're pivoting into different aspects of Congress, like what is a leadership career in Congress? What is the committee system, that that sort of thing. So it's, you know, it focuses on both the House and the Senate. And, and for those curious, you know, we'll be getting into some of the arcana around House rules, like what, where is the filibuster from? How has it changed? What does it do? That sort of thing in some future episodes. So it's, yeah, I think we're at like seven or eight episodes on Congress now. Mm-hmm. Each one is a little more than an hour. So it's, it's fairly digestible and, and we try not to talk too fast. Yeah, I've been loving it. It's been really useful because it's a good combination of American history and civics, right? So we get a look at both how the intention of how these institutions were constructed, but also why they came about that way and how they've shifted over the course of time. And we're going to get into the idea of things shifting in American culture over that. I just wanted to ask maybe like a fanboy question real quick. And it's whether or not you guys are going to talk about, maybe I just haven't gotten to the episode yet, but talk about budget reconciliation stuff at all. Because that seems to be, I mean, right now on Wednesday, the 29th of September, 2021, uh, a real, real hot button thing. The the bird rule. Yeah, it's very, it's very, it's very current. So yes, we're going to get to reconciliation. I suspect we touched a little bit on the, the breakdown of the old Bureau of the Budget and the rise of the Office of Management and Budget and one of the sort of middle episodes in the 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 change, the history of Congress, the historical Congress portion of this miniseries. But yeah, we, we probably should just do an entire episode on budgeting because, you know, the degeneration from, you know, intra-branch collaboration to committee-based budgeting to leadership-driven budgeting to the total failure of regular order and the maintenance of this fe- the federal state through continuing resolutions is is one of the more fascinating aspects of recent American political development that I, you know, it just totally flies under the radar with, with the sort of popular discussion of, of Congress. And what's interesting is, you know, we have seen nobody's been able to reimpose regular order completely on a chamber. But, you know, for the first year and a half, the Trump administration, McConnell pretty much was able to impose it on the Senate. And that was fascinating that like that, that it's, there's clearly contingency is playing a role in this. It's not all structural. And yet at the same time, he didn't, he did not succeed in like reimposing it as the way of doing business. Fortuna strikes again. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. No, no new modes and orders just yet. Yeah, um, but yeah, you you've had these these interesting things where like Patty Murray, the Democratic senator from Washington, and Paul Ryan, when he was 
um, speaker. I think it was when he was speaker. Yeah. They did the, the Murray Ryan budget and like they set a two-year budget and many people just sort of treated it like a normal piece of legislation, but the budget, I mean, passing a two-year budget at this point is a monumental accomplishment and just, there wasn't any political resonation or like it didn't politically resonate at all. Yeah, exactly. Well, you know, that's part of why I wanted to have you on because this podcast really bloomed out of watching sort of the institutional decay that COVID brought into light happened before our eyes. And we wanted to figure out why things felt so ossified and stymied. Mm. And I guess I don't know how to ask this question in a small way. So maybe I'll just ask it in like a terminological way. Like when we talk about political ossification, what does that mean in like the fields of study versus how we mean it colloquially or Mm. how should we think about it? Yeah. So as often happens, a lot of different levels of analysis and a lot of different issues wind up getting conflated in the sort of popular discussion. And, and I think the, the ability of academic terms to migrate into media and then be deployed sort of in a half-assed, sorry, my dog is coughing, in a half-assed way in, in media circles makes this a lot worse. I, I, I would say that in general, when people are talking about ossification or, or how things seem rigid or we just don't do anything anymore, they have a, they have a broad sense that in the past, institutions could be built or, or destroyed through legislation, that broad coalitions could be identified and solve collective action problems in order to achieve materially significant or meaningful ends. There's one possibility, and this is kind of where I am, which is that that is still possible but our discussion has become so detached from material reality that we don't even really notice it happening, right? So if you look at the last year of the Obama administration, Lamar Alexander, the since-retired senator from Tennessee, essentially put together a large bipartisan coalition in the Congress, in both the House and the Senate, to repeal No Child Left Behind. So Republican senator pulls out more or less root and branch the largest piece of Republican education legislation ever passed, passed by the two-term Republican president who had preceded the current president. Obama had zero role in this. And in fact, because in some ways he was out of, out of the picture, he just was sort of checked out on it. It was able to happen. And yet it was not on the cover of every newspaper. It was not a major story. And so you had a whole hog revamping of the federal government's role in education done on individual initiative in the legislature and more or less you know midwifed into existence simply by the legislature and the president signed it and he didn't veto it or get in the way and it just like it was like a fart in a hurricane nobody knows the other view and i'm also very sympathetic to this view because we we see these things happen is that it's very hard to break institutions or to or to end them, mm-hmm. right? I mean, and I don't just mean this in the old kind of Republican saw that when you create an entitlement, it becomes impossible to kill it, even though there's some, some truth to that. It's, you know, nobody has talked about, seriously, has talked about what it would look like to, you know, say, dramatically overhaul the FBI. Right, or um, even get rid of like 
or even get rid of TSA. Right, right. Like we're still taking our shoes off. Yeah. Before we get on airplanes. Right. And this seems to be why people, I think, rightly are panicked about things like what would a national vaccine mandate look like? It might not even be because they disagree with the idea of like a mandate per se, though I'm sure some of them do. But they're thinking like, well, how many booster shots that you have to pay for down the line are we? Yeah. Like it seems once you do that, it's really hard to roll back based on what we've seen through other moments of uh, a state sanctioned well, like, people regime just get, of worry. Yeah, people just get freaked out about these these sorts of things generally. I mean, like yeah. people forget the 1920s sparked this massive social movement called the Anti-Vaccine League. Totally, yeah. In yeah. the wake of the, of the I can't remember which decision. It's the one that they use as the pretext for Buck v. Bell. But anyway, mm-hmm. without going too far down that rabbit hole, yeah. I, I mean, there is a sense that once something is there, it, it's really hard to, to undo it. And then compounding this, is that, you know, America's physical infrastructure is in pretty bad shape in a lot of places. And so that's a like material manifestation of the inability to commit resources to solve broadly agreed upon social problems. So, you know, if you, if you feel like there's a sclerotic and even parasitic state apparatus that, you know, and, and I'm saying this not just as a, you know, screw the state, let's be kind of like, anarcho-libertarians. I'm not one of those by any stretch of the imagination, but it's more, you know, I think anybody can look at the federal government and see a lot of of accreted bloat Mm -hmm. and say, well, that's all still there and we're still paying for all of that. But, you know, this bridge looks like it's about to fall into the river and that's not like a force of sufficient urgency to get people to fix it. You know, Penn Station still exists. Right, 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 exactly. Or like, um, yeah, <laughs> I mean, just having lived all over the country at this point, I've, because I've had to drive to move different places and because I've just lived in different places, I've gotten a pretty broad look at American infrastructure and it is not in a good way. You know, yeah, I've lived not. in New England, I've lived in Florida, I've lived in New Mexico, I've lived in California in the Midwest and a lot of it's pretty bad. And it's, it's, you know, there are there are reasons for that, some good, some bad, but it is one of these daily and regular reminders that things don't work. I'm making sneer quotes; people can't see me, but you know, yeah, things just don't work. Right. Um, right. Yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. Right. And so, when we're talking about what we mean by ossification in this, what we're talking about is a feeling of being locked into these institutional spirals and regimes, for lack of a better word, with no way out. So, Oh, and I would add one more thing. Sorry. Yeah, and I, 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 this, I should have. There's also a sense that the system imposes such high transaction costs mm-hmm. that it's extremely difficult, even if you know what you want to do and know how to get out, that it can be you know, sufficiently onerous that it, that it becomes impossible. You know, the, there's a European academic literature on this around the concept of juridification, which has to do with like the legal, pro- the idea of the legal profession or legal process devouring political contestation. And there's some truth in that. Um, I don't, I don't know that I, it's been a while since I read that literature, but I, I didn't find it terribly enlightening in terms of their, their diagnosis, of the origins, but their recognition of this problem of, the law being cluttered and that there are just what we, what, you know, people colloquially in the U S call red tape being an, an, 
an inhibitor on both individual and collective action, I think is part of this. And it expresses itself in frustration with the transaction costs required to get anything done. Right, exactly. So when I'm looking at that, I'm, I'm already like separating this problem or this difficulty into like a few different categories, right? So one might be discursive, which would be cultural media problems. Like as you talked about, there was this huge uprooting of a major Republican achievement by uh, a Republican and some people who agreed with him and it just didn't even hit the news. Like that's interesting. While we have all of these like irreconcilable seeming conflicts that are just repeated every single day, then we have perhaps institutions themselves that have become sclerotic and stuff like that. And then I would put like, there are like material incentives in like another category. Like some people might benefit or think they benefit from this, the way mm -hmm. things are right now and have an interest in perpetuating that. So maybe we should take these in order and just start with this discursive one, because I think sure. it's quite interesting. Like there seems to be, you know, Falcon can't hear the falconer problem here. Yeah, I, I think there's some reality to that. I mean, it's also worth noting that I don't think people view the American, that Amer I don't think people think American political rhetoric has become stymied or, or ossified. Prior to Trump coming on the scene, you would see complaints about that. People would complain, at least on my side of the aisle on the right, they'd complain that all Republicans talk about is tax cuts. And, you know, there's some truth to that, but is that ossification or is that just a lack of imagination? Or is it just that that's the thing that pulls safely across a broad base of, of, of primary and general election voters, who, who knows, right? But in, in general, I don't think people think that American political rhetoric is, is static or staid or, or, or rigid. If anything, I think there's kind of an establishment freak out around how wild and woolly it has gotten in recent years. And, and it has changed. I mean, if, if you look at the best research on this stuff, Americans actually haven't become more paranoid or more inclined to believe conspiracy theories. And and the the literature, or sorry, the like the the discourse that in the past ran below this sort of level of public awareness where most of this sort of broad conspiracy theorizing was taking place, that stuff hasn't grown. It's just become visible to establishment media types. And interestingly, we are seeing you know, people who hold these views becoming themselves establishmentarianism, establishmentarian, either because people in the establishment, like your Joe Scarboroughs of the world, who become convinced of a Russiagate conspiracy, right? Or mm -hmm. Joy Reid, who was a 9-11 truther, becoming part of the kind of mainstream political media. So th there is maybe more interpenetration in the past, but what's undeniable is that, pe that the people who are part of the respectable discourse police used to live in sort of blessed ignorance of what actual Americans talked about when they talked about politics and how they talked about it. And now they can't, they can't persist in that. I mean, right. You know, I've had wild conversations on smoke break with co-workers. Yeah. Oh, you know yeah. what I mean? Like, that's oh, look, the I mean, like a week after 9-11, when I was in high school, I had a kid in my class say Bush did it. Mm -hmm. And yeah. this is a week after, right? This is not because he was getting it from alternative media. It's like that, that the shit is autochthonous. Like it's coming out of the ground. Like Right, right. Yeah. Um, he was an early yeah. adopter. I mean, yeah. And I guess I would say this too. This seems to be sort of an establishment blindness that goes back to like Hofstetter's paranoid style. Yeah, maybe. maybe. Right. Like, I, I mean, and I don't want to say it has its origins there. I, what I want to talk about is that's a good example of where people within the establishment don't understand the extent to which they too might also be paranoid and right. that might color how weird or different they see 
these insurgent elements as they I mean, have I minimal think, self-awareness. I think a lot of it has to do with the collapse of the journalism industry and in particular the breakdown of of the, the hegemonic role previously played by by network television. Because you had this this confluence of factors where thanks to the early 20th century professionalization of journalism schools, you have a great deal of homogeneity among professional journalists at all these local papers. And then you have, you know, this dominant position for, you know, network TV. It's easy for people to forget, but there's a, a majority of American households have televisions in them 15 years, roughly, after a majority of American households have radios in them. Mm-hmm. Like television shows up in the 1950s and it peaks, you know, maximum television penetration peaks in 1997, 1998. And, and at that yeah. point, fewer than one in five households have the internet. And then by 2018, you're well over, you're at about two thirds American households have the internet. And, you know, in 2018, that's the same year where American newspaper circulation hits its recorded low. Mm-hmm. And I don't mean it's recorded low as a percentage of the population. It's recorded low in absolute numbers. Yeah, in absolute terms. Yeah. And so what happens is instead of having this set of gatekeepers who are all professionally trained to join a cadre with their own sort of values, views, norms, mores, and behaviors. And, and, you know, skepticism of this comes in a lot of different forms, including the sort of skepticism about objectivity that you get in these navel-gazing newsroom debates going on right now is part of this too. But nonetheless, that homophily, if you will, created a sort of blindness that was able to persist because they had so much structural power because of the dominance of network and then later cable television. And as that's exploded because of the rise of the internet and the collapse of, of newspapers, which are that sort of initial entry-level gatekeeper, the, 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 people on t- the people who think that they're steering the ship, it's like they, they woke up, they thought they were like on a steam-powered you know, cruiser and they realized it's a galley with a whole bunch of rowing galley slaves who have opinions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. So I think that there's that part of it. Like one of the things that I've been thinking about is that I am starting to believe that there are unforeseen benefits to the collapse of this that are maybe mm-hmm. hopeful for a more democratic discourse, which will probably necessarily be more agonistic than what we've become used to. Look, certainly that's what the pre the pre mass media media landscape looked like. Exactly. Yeah. So like last year, I think when we were talking through Christopher Lash's Revolt of the Elites, is that something that he brought up when he was discussing the role of the press in Mm -hmm. the late 19th century and early 20th? So for listeners, if you want to go back and listen to that, that's our conversation with Jeff Schullenberger to cap off that the episode is, I believe, called Black Block Patrick Bateman. So that's from last year. Just scroll through the pages till you find it. But yeah, so... It might not be that we're as discursively ossified as we once were. Certainly things feel like a little bit more green pastures than when I was growing up in America, and especially compared to the war on terror era. Right. Yeah, which was very rigid, right? I mean, but the flip side too to this is that all of this is being driven by the collapse of, a, of an industrial model due to technological change. Mm-hmm. And you know, media as a large business, right? Where you have squawk boxes in people's sets and there are airwaves and there's, you know, there's, there's cable and there are fairly rigid 
set numbers of means of transmission and only so many companies that serve them. And there's, you know, large overhead costs that come with that, et cetera, right? You, insofar as the rhetorical landscape is blowing up and opening up and there's, there's more land, there's more terrain for originality, Right. Mm-hmm. At the same time. And, and you can even see this with the way television now program is now like idiot talking heads commenting on Twitter phenomena. Right. Which right. is dumb yeah. in its own way, but also mm-hmm. in some ways refreshing, weirdly. Right. It's been driven technological change. It was not a choice. Right. Yeah. Nobody made the decision. Hey, and maybe they should. Right. Made the decision. Hey, let's deregulate the networks because propping up these fat headed news divisions is the only thing that's preventing new networks from starting. And, you know, the network executives would probably rather show more episodes of, I don't know, like Big Bang Theory or public executions or whatever it is they show. And the news divisions only exist because right now we have regulations that require network TV to provide a social good in order to get access to the airwaves, their particular bandwidth, the airwaves. Query whether those news divisions are providing a social good. I think they're actually kind of a cancer on society. So, we could deregulate the networks that would get rid of those news things. And then that discourse would then then the demand signal for news would go and proliferate elsewhere Mm -hmm. because those news divisions don't make money. All right. Well, that's one way policy change might've gotten us to something akin to where we are, but that never happened. So we still have that regulatory, you know, gate defending the big three networks in place. And it's, it's just technological change that's driven it. So if we want, if we don't want things to be ossified, looking at the rhetorical level as, as a guide would have you kind of waiting around for, for, you know, Godot. Yeah. Right. Inventing a new technology that changes things. Right. Exactly. Okay. So I think that that leads pretty well into sort of the next discussion or next part of the discussion, which is going to be about like the nature of United States policymaking and maybe bureaucracy or special Mm -hmm. interests or something like that. Because as you said, this wasn't something we decided. It's sort of where we ended up due to technological shifts and maybe like marginal outcomes from other policy making, not direct intentions, therefore. So like 230C might be an example. What Here's something that you and I talk about fairly regularly, I think. I would say my internet connection is unstable. Am I good? Yeah, I can hear you. Okay. You and I talk about fairly regularly, which is that like people somehow act like America hasn't changed. Mm-hmm. And while it very obviously has, just like down to its functions as a political entity. Yeah. So, so I mean, the notion that America hasn't changed is on one level, it's very, it's very wrong. On, on the other hand, the notion that change is a lot harder today than it used to be could be correct. Right. So, you know, the many people have this intuition that politics, that American politics, because it works within a set of an institutional framework that doesn't change, right? We have a written constitution and that written constitution imposes structural limitations on American politics, as do the, you know, the, the, the semi-annual election requirements, et cetera. That means that there's, there are constraints on, on change. And that's, that's true. You know, for instance, oh God, who was it? I think I feel terrible. I'm such a bad grad student, former grad student now. I, but the the market is prison thesis is one of these where the argument is that if you ever actually started to impose real, whenever you try to impose left wing policy, you know, the market tanks and that imposes political costs on the person trying to to create the change. And then because of the semi annual election, people just get swept out 
you know, the next, mm. the next go round. Who was that? Who came up with it? Anyway, I digress. The, the quintessential and probably the most publicly accepted version of this view that, that American political history is cyclical is realignment theory. Right. So everybody hears, oh, the parties are realigning. Is this a realigning election? Oh, you know, there's that. That was a realignment. It's a real, real, you know, there's a popular show called The Realignment. Right. And realignment comes out of some fairly benign and, and generally intellectually sound observations made by a guy named V.O. Key, who writes a, you know, number of great books, including a monumental history of, of the South and the way Jim Crow democratic politics functions called um, Southern Politics and State and Nation. It's a doorstop of a book, but it's worth it. Everybody should go buy a copy and read it. But Key sort of notices that there are there are big elections that seem to shift the party coalitions and then other elections where that doesn't seem to happen. And, and he kind of observes this and, and subsequent political scientists pick up and run with it. You know, Burnham takes it and he comes up with this really elaborate typology of semi-generational realigning elections that just change everything. And, and, and he is focused on the presidency as the vehicle that drives change in American politics. And, and there's good reason for that, right? It's the most conspicuous office. Clearly, we see now patterns of political behavior that derive from which party controls the presidency. We call them midterm elections. We don't call them congressional elections versus presidential, right? right? Like, <laughs> like it, it's encoded in our minds such that it finds lexical expression in the way we talk about politics. But, you know, David Mayhew, the political scientist, wrote a critique of the genre called, what was it? I think just called realignment, a critique of, yeah. And Mayhew does a pretty good job of saying, look, if you actually look at the details of this stuff, it doesn't bear out. Either there are, either the criteria are insufficiently specific so that all elections wind up looking like realigning elections if you actually look at it, or the elections you say are realigning elections aren't. And, And that, like, he did a nice job of blowing up the kind of, I don't know, you, you, you could call it like the horoscope approach to American political change over time. On the other hand, people have a general intuition that like, yeah, shit changed when Thomas Jefferson was president. And it really changed mm-hmm. when Andrew Jackson became president. And, you know, Abraham Lincoln changed a lot of things. He brought a whole new political party and he fought a civil war and crushed the South. Like mm-hmm. that's real change. And it's just, it's not the same as what's, what, what Ulysses Grant did or what, you know, James Garfield did before Charlie Gateau shot him. Right. Like mm-hmm. there are, there are, FDR mattered. We know, right? right, right? Yeah, like, like yeah. Wilson, important, not as important as FDR. Yeah. Gerald Ford doesn't feel like as important. Yeah, Gerald Ford is not Ronald to... Reagan, right? Yeah, right. We, we yeah. know these things, and and it, and it's not reducible to one re-election served two terms mm-hmm. and got his own party elected. Although it's close to that, right? Like that's that's kind of if you look at it and you say. If you, if you want to take the Machiavellian view that says, you know, greatness is the construction of new modes and orders, well, how does that find expression in American politics? It's probably wins re-election, gets his party elected in, you know, to, to succeed him. So you have, you know, Reagan does that. Obviously, FDR does that. Lincoln does that. Jefferson does that. Right. So we have almost these like refounding figures that have an influence that redounds at least through successive generations of these people. And we can point to that. And I take your point that, you know, here a real alignment, there a realignment, everywhere a realignment, realignment. Like that's not really a helpful political vector for understanding this. So how do we understand the way in which 
American political institutions have changed. Yes. Yeah, so, so one of the time. more persuasive accounts of this that kind of tries to rescue the intuition underlying realignment is, is Steve Skoranek's book, The Politics the Presidents, That Presidents Make. And, and Skoranek argues that there's secular time and political time. So Skoranek begins from this really interesting observation that Jimmy Carter is one of the most effective legislating presidents in history. Guy passes laws in the, by the bucket load, and he just gets his shit handed to him and bounced and is universally regarded as feckless, <laughs> right? Yeah. And in many ways, Carter seems feckless because while he legislates a lot, he doesn't really solve the big problems that are in front of him. And so there's a lot of, there's a lot of chicken feed, but there's not a lot of, you know, he, inflation is still going gangbusters when he's out. The hostage crisis in Iran hasn't been solved, right? Like, yeah, The energy crises are still posing serious exactly, problems to the American exactly. electricity like, sector, et cetera, right. et cetera. He, he has not been able to legitimate the change he is able to affect, and he isn't able to change the things that people seem to prioritize. And so Skoranek says, what's going? And then if you look at Reagan, right? Like Reagan comes in and rhetorically changes the way American politics is, is conducted. But after the first Reagan budget, he doesn't actually get a whole lot done, right? He's not even able to skunk the Department of Education, which is the, the, the smallest cabinet department in the US. Like, we haven't ever gotten rid of a cabinet department, really. Mm -hmm. We folded a few of them together and then added new ones on. We've promoted and demoted different cabinet heads to cabinet levels. But like, what kind of a government can't get rid of one of its subparts? Right. There's this in Robert Bryce's Power Hungry, there's this very, I think, amusing and maybe a little bit bitchy appendix that is two pages of every single regulatory body in the United States that oversees energy. Right. Right. And I mean, or look at something like the Department of Homeland Security, which everybody agrees is a, is a dog's breakfast, right? I mean, it's just, mm -hmm. it's not, it's not an effective governing, governing entity. It doesn't work. And yet, has anybody seriously proposed getting rid of DHS? Right. Is, exactly. that, even, is that even like in the language? And so what Skoranek contends is that you have, you have ossification institutional life is getting more rigid over secular time, but political dynamics continue to move cyclically. And so he says essentially that the rhetoric of American politics is cyclical, framed, dominated by the presidency, and it's all about what you can legitimate. But what you can legitimate is getting more, while rhetorically it, it looks like it's still big and major and it still has the same consequences for who wins or loses political office, the actual landscape of change is getting narrower and narrower and narrower. And you know, a guy like Mayhew, who's generally skeptical of these accounts of, of cyclicality, agrees that you know the, the what we kind of call the Overton window in common parlance is not fixed width over time. Right. Like mm -hmm. in 1860, there's a debate going on over whether or not you can own people mm -hmm. like compared to that, whether or not we provide universal health care, kind of a small deal. Yeah. <laughs> Doesn't seem like it, but it is right. At the same time, you know, I would say there are some more open debates today than there were in the 90s. There are some institutional reasons for that too. We go into around campaign finance, but, but yeah. So Skoranek's account is yes, politics is cyclical at the level of partisan rhetoric and competing for office holding, but at the level of institutional change, things are getting much more rigid. And so you wind up with a guy like Obama, who, by all indicators, would have been a transformational president in in Skoranek's typology, and he just, I mean, he can't even close Gitmo. No, and he has no legacy. 
Right. Like the yeah, fact I mean, that I mean, Trump even got elected is was so, to me sort of like, oh, whatever this was, it didn't have the power that like everybody was telling me it had in 2008. When, yeah, I mean, the, and, and the individual mandate's dead. Yeah. Like it's over. I mean, that's it. The, the mm-hmm. green power plan that he put in place is dead. The individual mandate's dead. Gitmo's still open. Mm-hmm. And, and I don't know what else, what else was. I mean, yeah, that's really. Oh, most great. of the bank regulations have either been counterproductive, which was predictable, mm. or or have been sort of rolled back. Right, exactly. So what I'm interested in now, and maybe this is sort of where we pivot to this, this third part here, is when I take a look at, I can see the rhetoric stuff, I'm there. What feels a little bit hazy to me is how exactly these institutions become so hidebound, like perhaps it's just the iron law of institutions or whatever. But I also feel like, as you said, there's sometimes a parasitic quality to these and people develop interests in perpetuating them, right? Like when you give people a fiefdom, however like arcane it is, it's very hard to get them to let go of it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, my my counterpoint to that would be that it's not that they're sometimes parasitic. It's that all institutions have a parasitic component to them, Mm -hmm. right? Every time you create an institution, you create an interest group around it. I mean, Hegel and his theory of the universal class is just dead wrong, right? The idea that you're going to have disinterested civil servants is just stupid. Like, and, and, and what gives the game away is that we let them unionize, Mm -hmm. right? Like it, and, and the Germans who, if anyone was going to buy into Hegel's ridiculousness, allowed their civil servants to unionize in the 19th century. Like you want to talk about giving up on the, the, the principal notion of, of the universal class. Like if you're a labor union, you're an interest group. That's not an insult. It's just like, that's the that's whole point. That's what you do. I mean, the union if, exists to advocate for your interests. Yeah, like, if you're not doing that, then, uh, right, then you're not an effective so, union. <laughs> so, right. So if, if you have it, you can't both be universal in your outlook and have a union. If you have a union, you've already kind of given the game away. So so yes, all institutions create parasitic interests. That was true though in the 19th century as well. And we got rid of lots and lots of institutions, including extremely powerful ones, right? I mean, it's worth keeping in mind, this country banned booze and then realized they'd screwed up and, and reversed course. We got rid of the state party machines that ran the country more or less from 1828 until 1928 or beyond really 1932, you could say. And so it's not as if we, and you want to talk about organizations with, with, with major patronage, right? Or major parasitic qualities. Mm-hmm. When William McKinley gets elected in 1896, he has almost a hundred thousand political appointments to make just in the post office. <laughs> like, so, and, and I mean, by contrast, right? Like when Biden got elected, he had about 4,500, right? Which is even, still compa- compared like to like Trump, Germany. didn't even fill all of them. Right. And compared to like Germany, France, or the UK, which have large permanent bureaucracies that do a lot of agenda and policy setting, you know, we, we have more political appointments to try to exert democratic control, question whether or not that works. But, but yeah, I mean, it's still nothing. And still we got rid of those. So, so I don't think parasitism is sufficient. It's just as an explanation, it's just why do the parasites manage the parasitic notion, uh, dimension to institutions? Why is that enough now to frustrate change? Some people would, I think will point to polarization and they'll say, Oh, it's because you know you can't build durable cross-party coalitions now. That might be true, but I think I'm I'm a little more persuaded that the causal arrow goes the other way, which is that polarization is a byproduct of people giving up on belief that things can change. Mm. Which is to say that if if you think that 
if you think that politics can at the federal level can be a vector for your for enhancing your well-being then you will elect a different kind of person than if you think that politics is chiefly chiefly exists to be an outlet for your splenetic you know your lowest most splenetic views right this is sort of the Kant's perpetual peace thing where if like you don't believe that there a historical progress could happen then it's like assuredly will not right right yeah yeah which then you know if 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 a thing can be a self-fulfilling prophecy then it's probably not really prophetic it's just, it's just called agency right right <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah so so yeah i i i think that I think that a big part of it has to has to be we have to go back to the Great Society to look at it because at the Great Society the, the the biggest blind spot on the left and the right in American political discourse at the level of think tank egg eggheadery I'm not talking about like popular political discourse there's very little being written on the bureaucracy now and very little has been written on the bureaucracy since the 90s and when I say the bureaucracy it's not just oh what do we want the like the the al- alphabet soup to look like it's who is an American bureaucrat. Who ought to be an American bureaucrat? Right, right. I'll, I'll give you a, a helpful statistic here, and I, I'm, I'm not going to be precise, but very, very few European civil servants begin their careers and retire in the same department or in the same area of specialization. And in fact, in order to get promoted, typically people move from one department to the next, right? As a way to demonstrate broad administrative competence across a range of issue areas. More than 90% of American bureaucrats will die or retire in the bureau that they start their career. Right. And right. we've created a system that encourages, that, that encourages time serving, that punishes initiative, and that rewards specialization over broad competence. You know, this is now, interesting too. I just yeah. want to add a little bit to that. I think this is just my, you can tell me if this is way off, but I also think that there's like a historical cultural element to this as well. And here's what I mean. I don't know. Maybe I, I barraged you with texts about this because I spent a whole week doing it, unfortunately, to like everybody I know. But I realized that David Lilienthal, right, mm-hmm. a spearhead of the TVA right. and first commissioner of the Atomic Energy Coalition or Commission, right, right? Uh, a titan in his time, you know, impact on America is like incredible and like a consummate sort of like a almost celebrity bureaucrat, right? Right. A Fauci type character. Right. If you will. If you and, will. And <laughs> this was a guy that in his heyday was so popular, uh, a major publishing house published all seven volumes of his journals. Right. <laughs> right. Which are right. insightful because he was an incredible writer and an interesting thinker. And he had this profound policy impact. Every single thing he ever wrote has been out of print for decades. Mm. And the one biography that was written about him in 1997 hasn't been in print since the year after it came out. Huh. It's like, we have no memory of these people that have shifted these things as historical figures either. And right. that's interesting. Yeah. And I mean, the, the new deal is full of these folks and they, they move from, from specialization to specialization. Now what happens in the great society is that there's, there's a shift in the way we understand bureaucracy and it's born out of a genuine complaint. There is a feeling that the state has grown to take care of a lot of different areas of human life, but it is staffed by a very homogenous group of people. And those people may not have the best intuitions about the people they're serving. They may not have much native sympathy for them. They may not really get where they're coming from. 
And so you wind up with fairly authoritarian top-down action. Similar thing happens at the level of municipal government where you know, everybody looks at, you know, New York City and the changes that were wrought, you know, by a number of people, but there are sort of titanic figures who stand astride, some elected, some not, this period of time. And they say, oh, wow, you know, this was really amazing. But also let's look at the collateral damage. You know, Jane Jacobs publishes the, the what is it, the Death and Life of an American City. Yep. People recognize that, you know, some really valuable things have been bulldozed in order to build the interstate highway system. Uh, yada, yada, yada. And, and there's a reluctance now to uh, empower people to impose that kind of change. And so there's a desire, there's enough frustration that builds up against a sort of high-handed federal government and high-handed municipal governments that protections are put in place to prevent this sort of thing from happening. Some of them are just process protections. Some of them are historical preservation protections. Some of them are environmental protections. Interest groups do a pretty good job of like wedging themselves in here in the 1970s. And, and it makes it so that it's very hard to do, to do things without paying a whole lot of transaction costs up front. So, you know, you look at, for instance, the, the new, the Moynihan Hall that just, the Moynihan Train Hall that just opened opposite Penn Station, which is itself hilarious. Nobody, we didn't bulldoze Madison Square Garden or even, you know, gut out all of Penn Station underneath Madison Square Garden. We just took an old post office building across the street and built another train hall there, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. You know, and, and, and it's not... It, and it's so it's kind of I mean that's kind of exemplary of what we're talking about, right? And like yes, Hudson Yards also got built this just kind of monstrous collection of glass skyscrapers in a mostly discarded in post-industrial sector, but that pales in comparison to you know building Central Park, right? Right, carving that landscape out for Olmsted or or building the West Side Highway or or any of those things, right? And so so there's there's a legitimate pushback and. What happens is that the notion that shifts away from what we want are the best and the brightest with high levels of ruthless administrative competence working their way up the civil service ladder by moving from department to department to department to get ahead as bureaucratic entrepreneurs to what we want are extremely knowledgeable people who understand the technical complexity of their issue area, who have specialized training, higher education, master's degrees have become really prioritized within the, within the, you know, the bureaucracy who are sensitive to the needs of the constituents they're serving, constituencies they're serving, and ideally look like them and have come from. Mm -hmm. And when I put it that way, I think, I hope the listeners hear that and say, okay, yeah, that does make a lot of sense. But then let's turn around and say, isn't that also just another way of saying that we're structurally encoding regulatory capture or interest group capture into the federal bureaucracy? And the answer is yes. Right. So here's... Okay, so I see that there's that. What's her name? Thea Scotchball. Yeah, Thea, Thea Scotchball. Yeah, you're right. Who also has that thing where we we go from uh, protecting soldiers and mothers is a really good book. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and her one on the the shifts in political affiliation. Yeah, how we go from you know like presidents in the earliest twentieth century would have to like go to like local halls for random ethnic groups and convince them. Mm-hmm. you know, who they were, and they had all these rights of initiation into those groups or whatever, to basically this Sierra Club being like, if you don't wire us $100, the world ends tomorrow. Right. You know, we have to stab Joe Manchin in his sleep. 
Yeah. And it's, it's funny because there are still little places like Wheeling, West Virginia is a place that I, I go for work sometimes. And it has, you know, this is a town of like 24,000 people with 36 fraternal societies in it. Wow. And it, yeah. And it's like going to the moon now. Because it's, but, yeah, but that used to be normal, right? That right? was just like, the, like, just yeah, the way it is. Just, because the people just went and they went and drank beer together, in, right? In so here, like organizations. So, so here's why I brought that up. Yeah, and it's because you've talked about right. Like I think you did a good job of laying out maybe a, a very sympathetic case for like the theory of representation that has sort of gotten us into some of this regulatory capture trouble. I'm also wondering if the way that we consider the American public, the broad sovereignty of the citizenry differently as well. Say what you mean by that. Yeah. So when... I think I know, but I don't want to be wrong. So Right, right, right. So you were dunking on Hegel earlier, right? (laughs) However, like, let's say, okay, maybe not universal, but we would want to say at least common, right? Sure, sure. Common representation of the public will. I would even go so far as to say just broad. Broad. Yeah, sure. Broad. And then what you've described in terms of you want these people to be highly trained, look like and come from these areas, and that creates uh, a type of interest group capture, that seems to be like uh, narrow, right? Yes. Yes. So to me, that bespeaks a shift in the way we consider what the public is and means for us politically. Yes, right, right. So I think that's right. Okay, so yes, there there is a kind of inbuilt, to prioritize parochialism is to assume a kind of deep pluralism that maybe unstated behind it has serious doubts about whether or not there is such a thing as a nation or Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a people even, rather than sort of an agglomeration of peoples. I think probably in the in the mid-60s when the shift took place, it in some ways could be done innocently enough because it was so obvious that there was an American nation. And because you have to remember this happens, this doesn't happen at the moment of institutional failure or liberal collapse, right? No, the great irony the, is that this happens the at the point. apex. Yeah. yeah. Like if, the, if the liberal hour is 1964 to 1967, roughly, Right, and that's like the the apex of American liberalism. That's when these changes start happening, and so it's it's almost like it's a it's it's like a self defeating internal component to that kind of mid century liberalism that 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 is born out of their confidence. But but like <laughs> you know turns around and like self eviscerates. Right. Well, and I also think that there are some interesting things going on in the background for the Cold War. Right. And, and here's what I'd say. And maybe this is just my, you know, recovering lefty take on this. Sure. But one of the things that I see in like the Moynihan report or the melting pot theory, mm-hmm. you know, th- this is where a lot of this great society stuff comes from. Right. It's predicated on these liberal assumptions. But these liberal assumptions were a great way to avoid discussing really uncomfortable issues of class. Yeah. Yeah. And also you can weld people into these groups, right? And just to, just to put a fine point on that, you can weld people into these ethnic groups or whatever, rather than look at what people within certain classes might have in common. Right. And so then you start to have these theories of just like, well, you know, there was a certain level of like cohesion for this group of immigrants. And that's what, you know what I mean? And you could also sort of be like, like, I don't know what happened with race in the new deal. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, look, like the history, certainly the historiography of the period is doing a really, really serious whitewash effort on 
on the New Deal. And actually, Jay and I touch on this in the Congress episode when we talk about the New Deal, which is like, there's a reason liberal historians suddenly flip over to Eleanor when they start talking about race and the New Deal. Yeah, because FDR did not give a shit about that. No, he did not. And he was more than happy to like, but, but yeah, what I think the other thing that's worth pointing out, and this will get me in trouble with a lot of your listeners, but you know, there are two big events that haven't happened yet, right? First of all, there's Vietnam. And so you, you see, you know, Vietnam sows major distrust in the capacity of smart people to run the government. Oh, sure. Follow the best and the brightest. That's right. And then the other thing, of course, is, or as, as Schlesinger himself would call it the bitter harvest or, and then the second thing, of course, is there is the massive immigration reform that dramatically diversifies the populations that are coming into the United States through immigration and increases the overall rate, which I think personally, it's not too much to say, probably calls into question the efficacy. It makes it harder to just assume that the melting pot's going to work, right? Like you can sit there and say, of course, the melting pot's going to work. We have pre-existing immigrant communities for all of these different groups, right? Like if you're also, once you have the iron curtain, you don't have a lot of checks coming over, right? You Mm -hmm. don't have a lot of, you know, different Eastern European populations coming over because communism isn't going to allow that to happen. You know, the one big, the, the two big moments of mass immigration into the U.S., before immigration reform are, you know, from Cuba and South Vietnam. And those are seen broadly in the context of the Cold War. Mm-hmm. And so they're, they're seen as, it's, it's seen as essential that these people be accepted. And not to say that they weren't without massive conflict, they were, but these groups of people coming in have to be assimilated because, you know, if we don't, the commies win, right? Right, And, right. and that, ch- after Carter's reforms, that changes and you have, and look, like there are good things that come out of that, but it's also much harder to say, to, to take the melting pot for granted when you have more people coming from more countries. Right. And it creates, I mean, I don't, I personally don't think that that's an unfair point. I was talking to someone, a lefty friend of mine about this the other day is like one of the things that we don't talk about is how, yeah, it's true that a lot of labor organizers were immigrants and like immigration laws were sort of like how we would get rid of very effective lefty organizers who were agitating in the labor movement. Like that's all true. But one of the reasons they were effective is because not only did people have the common experience of being uprooted and then within an immigrant class and an industrializing society, but also because they came from a cultural background that had similar assumptions. Yes. Right. And that that's important and you can't really ignore that. And it might be uncomfortable, but that's sort of the uncomfortability of how you navigate a pluralist society, right? In the same way, like at the opening of, I'm not endorsing Piketty, but at the opening of his his major like tome, right? Mm -hmm. He was like, the U.S. expands so much over a period of time that, like, you run into a quality quantity problem. Oh, yeah, issue. Yeah. yeah, You know, where it's like, is this even the same country it was when it was 13 colonies? Fair question. And I think you could ask the same question of, like, what is the United States as a nation state? Or is it, you know, the Claremonsters love saying this, like, yeah. you just think it's an economic zone, you know? But I think that bespeaks sort of how a lot of these things went uninterrogated 
or were poorly reckoned in the, in the um, middle publicly. of the 1960s you could you could just take this stuff for granted right and, and now think, we're yeah. in a different situation so that was right. a long-winded and, way to say that yeah and, and what it is is that you've had dramatic cultural change a lot of it gets racked up to like political change the right liberalism in the united states and maybe this is just me being a, a republican hack but liberalism in the united states suffers from a chronic incapacity for self-criticism and which isn't to say that they're bad at self-flagellation yeah, very right. different there's, things. There's a different thing, right? And and most of the kind of intellectual architecture around American liberalism is still legacy stuff from the Great Society. I mean, oh, 100%. Is I, Barack Obama anything other than a warmed over Great Society liberal? Right. No, I, like I he's nice. He's nicer about that. sex stuff to like to 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 alternative, you know, sexualities. That's yeah. about it. And even there, he's not exactly like profiles and courage. Right, exactly. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, I guess I would say this. Like, to me, I would say that there's a certain sort of like rhetorical, and and I think this extends to political vision path dependency mm-hmm. happening on both sides. What's interesting is that it's depersonalized for liberals yes. and almost unspoken. It's more like an assumption, and it is the great society assumptions. You know, in the 70s, we have our first major environmental stuff happen. There's also all the cultural stuff that's happened. Obviously, we still have people that like cut their teeth. John Kerry is still around, for Christ's sakes. John and, Kerry, who who built a national profile based on Vietnam. Right. Exactly. Like, yeah. Yeah. People still a, want to know what Jane Fonda has to say about the environment. Yeah. Forty-eight years ago. Right. Exactly. And then on the right, it does really feel more like the like a Plutarchian like founders influence thing. And a lot of that energy is around the cult of Reagan. Yeah. So, I mean, I do think the, the Reagan cult is, is fading a little oh, bit. Oh, I think that's true too. I'm just saying Which that's is where good. it's been for a while. Yeah. And, and I say this, actually, this is funny. So my, my grandfather on my father's side who died when I was two, I have no living memory of him, but he grew up in Dixon, Illinois, and he was extremely good friends with Ronald Reagan throughout their life. And so I have like a hundred letters between the two of them. And it's funny because I think of myself as much more like a Nixonite Republican than a, than a Reaganite. Based in um, Nixpilled? What's that? Based in Nixpilled? Yeah. Yeah. Nixpilled. <laughs> That's right. Tan rested and ready. But, but, you know, it's, if, if ever there was somebody who was going to buy into the, I think, Reagan hagiography, it, it would be me. But I don't, I mean, I just, I see Reagan as a monumentally important figure for breaking the great society. But insofar as there was an era of Reaganism from 1980 to 80 until, say, Obama in 2008, if you want to do a periodicity, right? Like, it, it is ultimately a, <clears throat> I think it's, it, I would say the, the proof is in the pudding that the, the ability to bind together, to use just sort of like handy terms, Buchananites, Reaganites, Nixonites, and Bushites, right, into a single coalition just had a lot to do with the Cold War. And right, ultimately, yeah. the Cold War is more important than Reagan for holding the Republican Party together. Yeah, I think that's true. So I, I also think that fundamentally – that's an elite question because the base of the Republican Party has not changed that much, actually. Homeowning, I mean, I mean, it is still a a Burgermeister political party, mm-hmm. right? Like homeowning small business people, laborers and both both managers and owners mm-hmm. in the in the you know sweep of the Midwest. That's still like that's the Republican base, and that hasn't changed since Eisenhower. 
Right, right. So we the first thing we took a look at is we took a look at how basically the operations of rhetoric has changed. Yeah. Then we took a look at what the nature of our very bureaucracies are. And then we sort of talked about like interest groups in terms of ossification and shifting theories of the public and deep pluralism versus uh, broader politics that right. I think we're downstream from. Now, when I look at this, if we say that sort of the Reagan moment's fading, it's obvious to me that the great society stuff is now really running into big trouble. And I think some of that has to do with last summer and some of that's going to have to do with the energy stuff that's coming down the pike because environmentalism yeah. is part of that, that too. Yeah. What I can't tell is if we're in a green pastures moment, right? Or if we're into, as the gentleman over at Alpha Bunga Bunga call it, the end of the end of history. <laughs> Right, where it's the end of something, but not the beginning of anything else. Right. So I'm wondering what your read is on our current moment and where we are and where you think we might be so, headed. So we're, so we're, zoom, we're zooming out here. Yeah, we're going to zoom out um, and, and tie some of the stuff together. I'm probably more along the end of end of history line of things. And, and, but let me explain why. I think that a big part of a big pressure valve and pressure release for deep pluralism and political contestation in American life between whether you want to date it to like immediate to the end of Vietnam to the present, or maybe just even like Reagan to the present is that interest groups have academics overlearned the lessons in the civil rights movement and became obsessed with social movements interest groups correctly learned the lesson of the civil rights movement and became litigation strategists. And, you know, if you look at the ways in which what happens in the civil rights movement is that you have some truly brilliant leaders doing a sort of like front of house, back of house thing simultaneously, which is they're doing highly decentralized local organizing so that you have people in place everywhere, right? To help guide flashpoints when they happen, right? Because there are just in politics and society, like moments occur. George Floyd would be one of these, right? However one thinks about what happened in Minneapolis, like there would have been no reason for people to have a well-organized network of X, whether you're, you know, three percenters standing around gas stations with guns or black or, you know, Black Lives Matter organizers who are trying to recruit, like why Minneapolis versus Milwaukee, right? Mm -hmm. No, no, no reason why one over the other. And so, you know, what, what the civil rights movement did a really good job was doing localized organizing and then twinning that because they had a high degree of, of elite communication and alignment with very strategic litigation strategies. So you had both a mass social movement and uh, with, with, that would engage in protest, that would court brutality in order to then get that brutality onto you know, the major TV networks, right? This, I mean, this is essentially the strategy is court brutality and then force white, polite America to watch that brutality on the TV. Right. There's an almost avant-gardist aspect. Well, and it, ba it backfires, right? I mean, like people have totally memory hold this, but Hannah Arendt writes a scathing essay condemning Martin Luther King Jr. after Little Rock because she says it's wrong to send children into dogs. 
I don't care what your cause is. It's always wrong to send children into dogs. And, and, you know, query whether she was right or not about that, right? Like I, Little Rock is a setback for the civil rights movement because it looks, it's so brutal, but it also looks, it, it also looks too much like it's a set piece. Right. So those social, social movements pre- presuppose the existence of that media technology we talked about at the beginning, capable of magnifying moments on the ground, right? In a, in a concerted way. So the barriers to entry to the public consciousness are extremely high, but once you get there, you're there and you're very much in people's faces and they really can't get away from it. At the same time, reform is being driven through these litigation strategies. As media collapses, interest groups come to realize that like they can't really count on getting in front of the TV cameras anymore, right? Americans get more cynical about protests, especially after Vietnam, you know, the environmental movement early on around Earth Day and some other things kind of manages to, to get the band back together. But a lot of that has to do with the amorphousness of their of what they want. Right. Like you've got everything from the zero population growth to the like, let's reduce landfill through recycling people talking about how and an Arbor Day. Right. Mm-hmm. All of these are actually very different groups of people together. Once once it becomes clear that you can't count on the television networks to turn you into a cause celeb. All that's left to you is the litigation strategy. And so the federal judiciary has become the vector through which lots of activist groups, you know, achieve their ends. I mean, look at something like the pro-life movement that still year after year after year holds the largest issue-based march year after year in the, in the March for Life in Washington, D.C., and they're just blacked out of the media because of, you know, cultural political reasons, right? Mm-hmm. And yet it's not the March for Life, God bless them, that is going to, tr- that has has forced change. It's, it's the fact that, like, pro-life attorneys have finally figured out a couple of novel angles, both in Texas and Mississippi, to challenge Roe. We'll see if they succeed. Who knows, right? And and dumb luck when Ruth Bader Ginsburg dies and getting Amy Coney Barrett on the court has opened up a, a window for this. Mm-hmm. So, so it's it, it, what, what has happened is these social groups have gone from broad-based organizing twinned to elite-driven litigation strategies to just an email list to fund the lawyers doing the litigation. And that by its very nature means that it doesn't have like rich solidarity on the ground. Right. So what I'm hearing is that they're sort of like a decoupling from what one would assume would be like a broad or mass or politics or what have you with how politics is actually affected and it's affected through the courts. At least that's right. what people think. And it's true. And so and the minute the courts yeah. stop being a vector for that, that's where I think you'll find out whatever the next thing is. Because the interest groups will then have to, to deliver. Because they can't just deliver through a series of federal court rulings or an ongoing perpetual struggle over this regulation or that or challenging the APA or filing preliminary injunctions, mm-hmm. et cetera, right? I mean, like, look at what the ACLU... I mean, the ACLU has become a cadet branch of the Democratic Party devoted to filing spurious lawsuits against state it's, governments. It's, tra- it's honestly tragic. Yeah. I like that. I mean, th- that to me is like... And the way that they behave in California around the homelessness issue, it's... I mean, it's... You know, we, I've, I've talked. Hey, didn't you know that it's your civil liberty to be like just crushed by disease and addicted to both meth and heroin at the same time? Yeah, let alone and always on the precipice of overdosing from yeah. Yeah, uh, fentanyl human, poisoning. Your human, your human dignity hinges on that. Right, exactly. That's um, a free choice, clearly. And so here, here's what I think is interesting. And and I'll end it here just to yeah. uh, 
let you know some of the things that I've been thinking about in terms of this. I don't, I think that we'll see some change. I don't think it will be, it will happen soon. I think mm -hmm. that these things need to exhaust themselves and there will be some externalities that surprise us because that's life, that's history. However, one of the things that lets me know that we're, we have some room for other ideas and maybe other strategies to come on board is the way in which, um, following you guys on the right, there seems to be like just an open fight about what the fuck is even supposed to be happening over there. Yeah. That's interesting to watch. And then on the left side of it is that there's this interesting thing that happens. Do, you saw that interview with that woman from the LA Teachers Union. I think so. That like it hit the media like wildfire where she's oh, like, yes, there's yes, no yes, such so. thing yeah. as learning loss. Yeah, that's right. No such thing as learning loss. Yes. And the thing that I noticed about that, right, people were rightly upset about such a claim, but I think that they were- I mean, to, to be fair, with LAUSD, there may not be such a thing as learning loss because there's no learning to go on, going on anyway. But. Right, right, right. So that, that might be one response to it. But the thing that worried me about that is, or not worried me, but I, I thought went underappreciated was the way in which her argument hinged on defeating the thing that it was supposed to be defending and devaluing mm -hmm. that thing. Yeah. Yeah. Because the next time they go out on strike, administrators might say, hey, take all the time you want. Right. There's no such thing as learning loss. Learning loss. Right. Right. And that shows to me that like we're really hitting a wall here. Yeah. I mean, it's it certainly showed that at least in the minds of the UTLA, the teachers are an interest group independent of whether or not they deliver goods in the classroom. And again, like it's my view that that's been true for a very long time. Like when Zimmerman was running the UTLA, that was true then as well, right? Like I just, I guess the way I would put it is this, you know, going back to the courts thing, courts are really good at saying no to mm -hmm. things, stopping things from happening. They're really bad at making things happen in our system because our system is still roughly a common law system that, that requires a particular case and controversy to come before them. And so they can kind of, they can prevent harm, sometimes prophylactically through, through, I think, trigger-happy injunctions, sometimes retroactively. But, but in general, they're, they're forces of negation, not forces of creation. The, the COVID moment there with the, there's no such thing as learning loss is an interest group acting as a force of negation. Mm -hmm. They're negating change. The change being, ironically, the restoration of normalcy. Yeah. But they're, they're just saying... Well, we know you're not going to break our contract. And if you do, we'll sue and we'll get it reimposed because we can stop you from breaking it. Mm -hmm. And so we're just not going to show up and you're going to pay us and you're going to like it. And at a certain point, everybody can't just get their little piece and do nothing, mm -hmm. right? People have got to work for a living. <laughs> right. Well, also it's like society has to run. Yeah. Right? You know, like, like we're dependent on each other and like that know, has to be turned into a civic ethic of like trying to do shit. Well, and I think that's, that's what you've been pointing to throughout the conversation that this kind of ties it all together is just, we've gone to this point where we had an, you know, we had a system at the high point of liberalism under the, the new deal or the great society. We had a moment of institutional pluralism leading to cultural pluralism, leading to now to a kind of odd solidarity list individualized pluralism of, well, I have mine, but there's no presumption. 
that I have any, you know, rights that I can claim against or responsibilities that I owe anybody else. Like, am I a teacher because I got a master's degree in education? I'm, I, I don't have one of those. I'm just, you know, if I'm one of these people, right. like, does that make me a teacher? Or is it the fact that I stand in a classroom and teach kids to read? I mean, mm-hmm. the answer should be the second, right? Yep. But you start to get the feeling that we like, we're, it's, it's the, the credentialized society that's actually driving things. And, and I mean, I, I once, Adam Tooze once said to me that, you know, the Cold War turned the Germans into Americans the Amer- or the Prussians into Americans and the, Pru- and the Americans into Prussians. Yeah. And like, in, beyond the, like, the, the, the hyper-militarization of aspects of the state, if we have become just credentialized obsessives, then he's definitely, he's definitely onto something. Right. And I think that that has created, and maybe this is why indeed nothing feels uh, entirely possible right now, is that it is an institution that entrenches disaffiliation. Yes, yes. And I think now, that's where we are. And that is a very difficult and frankly, dark place to be for yeah. a society. Now, ultimately, what's going to happen, and this is where to bring it full circle and come back to the beginning. I mean, the Constitution will reassert itself because we have elections every two years. And that means that it's very difficult to do what like Justin Trudeau did and call a snap election to try to shore yourself up. And so there are forces beyond the control of politicians that dictate their fates, right? Like you, you, can't, you can't juice the business cycle, try as you might, to time it with, with a semi-annual election. Yeah. And what, what's going to wind up happening is one of the two parties is going to, to draw to an inside straight and crush the other one. Mm-hmm. And at that point, you know, it happened in 2008, right? Yeah, that's super, um, people forget how big that supermajority is that was, and I mean, how 60, little they did with 60 it. 60 senators, right? <laughs> uh, and, and, you know, Obama, Obama is probably the first president since Grover Cleveland who really had a transformational opportunity and blew it. I mean, you could say Wilson did too, but I'm not actually sure Wilson ever had a transformational opportunity because he was never a majority president. And so, yeah, I mean, truly we will have another one of those and it may come quickly. I mean, the signs are all suggesting that Either the Democrats or the Republicans are going to win a big, a big election. And then the question is, do they possess the intellectual resources to, to change any of these, to, to force through, come hell or high water, meaningful changes? Or are we going to have 2008 all over again? And mm-hmm. the, the, the door will open and we will decline to walk through because we lack imagination. I'm so, you know, this is the collective we as, as, as Americans and then the door will slam shut because we'd go back to tired, old, you know, already used up intellectual resources. So, I mean, maybe the, maybe the upshot of all of this is, is, is just blame Obama. <laughs> right, right, right. Well, and I would, also, I would also say that that moment will also be contingent on who's holding the leash. Yeah. And whether exactly. people feel like it's the public holding the leash or their donors. Yes. And that is going to be decisive for whoever wins the onslaught. Um, That's right. I think so. We'll leave it at that. Luke, thank you so much. This was a great time. Love to have you on again sometime. Yeah. Well, thank you for having me. This was a great conversation. All right, everybody stay safe out there and we'll see you next time.